Mark chapter 5, and today we uh, get to cover verses 1 through 20 uh, regarding uh, spiritual warfare. You know, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you're in a war. You know, if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've repented of your sins and uh, crowned Him as the Lord of your life and placed your faith in Him and your trust in Him, then when you die, you'll go to heaven. You are saved, you are forgiven, you are free. The war is already won because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I thank God for that. You know, I know for sure that when I die, even though I'm not, you know, all that, I still fall short. I know I'm free. I know I'm forgiven. And I know I'll be in heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross and how I placed my faith in him. But here's the thing. Even though the war is already won, there are many battles along the way. And what I see a lot of times, even in the church, is that there are a lot of Christians who are many times losing those battles along the way because they don't realize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the darkness. I mean, you fight with your wife, you fight with your husband, you fight with your kids, you fight with your boss, you fight with people on the freeway, you know, you get mad at your dog, whatever it might be. You're not fighting them. You're fighting the devil. You're fighting demons. And a lot of times we don't know who our enemy is. and We don't even know how to fight. And that's why you're getting whooped. That's why so many times, even in the church, a lot of the people, they're depressed, they're oppressed. And sometimes whatever even happens is it even leads to people being possessed because they start doing drugs. They start doing crystal meth. They start doing alcohol. Um, they start visiting fortune tellers. And what that does is that opens doors to demons. And so this is very practical. What we're going to study today, the battle that we have along the way, even though the war is won. And so, man, I really pray that we would know this, ultimately, that Jesus Christ is the answer. You know, Jesus Christ himself, you can't win and you can gather a host of other friends that are, you know, the godliest people you ever met. They won't win the war for you. Only Jesus can. And that's why you have to yield your life to him. You have to let him fight the battle for you. You can't do it yourself. But when we do, we're going to see that the enemy is absolutely powerless against our Lord. And so there's that lesson here in this section very practical for us because every single day we fight against the flesh, the world, and the enemy. You know, our flesh is, the, is this body that we live in. It's inclined to evil. The world that we live in is in a flow of evil. So it would be kind of like if you've ever been, any of you here ever been whitewater rafting and you know how the river just flows? It just goes so fast. You know, and so you're in the river and you want to go with it and the river's going this way. How in the world are you going to go against the flow? You don't have the power, but Jesus does. And that's why we need to really pay attention to this section. Because look what it says in Mark 5, in verse 1, it says, And then they, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. 
neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. Here we see Jesus meets a man. He comes to a man who is miserable. You know, and we pick it up here after last week. We know that he went across the storm. You know, why does he do that? We're going to see that today. Now, if you cross-reference Matthew 8 and Luke chapter 8, you'll find that there were actually two men, but Mark hones in on one of them, and we're going to do the same in our study today. And so we read in verse 2 that Jesus gets out of the boat, and this man meets him with an unclean spirit. Now, just in case, and I know most of you know this already, but an unclean spirit is not a person who maybe they haven't bathed in a long time. No, this is a man who has a demon inside of him, right? And so we see that in Revelation 16, 13, and 14, and we're going to see it later in verse 15, that this unclean spirit is clearly identified as a demon. But, but look at the condition, the horrible situation where this man finds himself. Number one, look at his dwelling. Look at his dwelling. It says there, again in verse 2, that when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him a man of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And so you see where he lives. He didn't always live there. There was probably a time where he lived in a nice home, just like you and me. He had a bed. He had a, you know, a roof over his head. He was kind of living a normal life. But then one thing led to another, right? Next thing you know, he finds himself sleeping in a cemetery. It's not just the Gadarenes. It's a graveyard. He lives where the tombs are. He lives where the dead bodies are. And in one sense, it's kind of like a message that he's a dead man, already. He's a dead man walking. And so you've got to see his dwelling. And then secondly, you've got to hear his crying. Look what it says right there. It says in verse 5, and always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out. I don't know if you ever heard someone like crying like this. I'm, I'm sure we can probably you know, think of maybe situations where you heard someone just crying out in a situation of absolute and utter hopelessness and desperation. Here's this man living in a graveyard, in the cemetery, in the tombs. He's a dead man walking and he's just crying out every single day and night. And the third thing we see about this man that just breaks your heart, we read that in verse 5, that not only was he crying out, but it says he was cutting himself with stones. And so this man was being tormented. This man found himself directly under the influence of Satan. He found himself trapped in the agenda of the adversary. John 10.10 says the thief or the devil has come to steal, kill, and destroy. To distill you from God, to kill you physically, and to destroy you in a place called hell forever. And so what does the devil do? In one sense, he can't destroy you, but in another sense, he can make you destroy yourself. You know, we all have a choice. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Jesus Christ or not? We all have that choice. And we all have to, you know, think that one through. You know, here's a man, think about it. He's cutting himself 
with stones. What is that? That is self-destructive behavior. And that's how the enemy operates. Uh, He leads us to a place where, in one sense, we ourselves commit suicide. Ultimately, it's called spiritual suicide. You know, we see this today and it just breaks your heart. Millions of American teenagers, as well as adults, they voluntarily injure themselves. Some cut themselves with a knife or razors. Others burn their skin with matches or cigarettes. Some hit themselves. They bang their heads against a wall, pull out their hair, stick needles into themselves, or even break their own bones. I mean, in a crowd this size, I know, having been a pastor for you know, a couple of decades now, there are some of you here who have cut yourself. There are some of you here who have self-destructive behaviors and who have suicidal thoughts, just like this man. And you've got to know that's not God's plan for your life. That's the devil. He hates you. God says in John 10.10, on the contrary, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. But here we see the the kids nowadays cutting themselves and it just breaks your heart. You know, the majority of those that cut themselves are young women between the ages of 13 and 25, but men and women also do this. Most of the time it begins in the early teen life and then it goes beyond. We know that in society today, this is uh, caused by abuse uh, ranging from uh, not having love or attention from their parents or maybe alcoholic or drug-engulfed parenting. Sometimes they're being ignored or absorbed. Uh, Sometimes it's verbal, physical, or sexual abuse. The victims feel severe, deep, and ongoing emotional pain. And so what do they do? They repetitively injure themselves, generally doing so for for two reasons. One, they obtain relief from their enormous emotional pain when they inflict this type of physical pain upon their body. And so they're hurting so bad inside that when they cut themselves, they actually feel better. That's one thing. Another thing is because of their relentless and unbearable emotional pain, they've trained their nervous system not to feel anything at all. What that is, is a numbing of a person's life. See, and I know there are some of you here that you either know somebody who's done this or you've done it yourself. And what we got to see is that's the devil. That's the enemy. The interesting thing is I did a lot of research on this and, you know, they, they tell you that, you know, that there's help with psychologists and sociologists and they have a lot of, uh, you know, medical uh, ways of dealing with it. But all those things are just band-aids on something that needs the supernatural power of God to mend and heal their heart. You know, what we see in looking at this is that only God can provide the healing that they need, right? I I think for us, in looking at this man and seeing Jesus go to him, we need to know that he comes to us. You know, and it's interesting because I was reading this and just kind of thinking it through, seeing where he lived, hearing where they cried, and knowing the reason they cut themselves, It brought me back to the book of Exodus when God appeared to Moses. 
And God said the same thing to them in Exodus 3, verse 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows, so I have come down to deliver them. You see, and that's the God that we serve. I know there are some of you here that are your, your right smack in the middle of this. You might not be possessed, but you find yourself oppressed. The enemy has a, a stronghold or a foothold over your life. And so God says, I want to get you into church today and I want to talk to you. I want you to know that I'm available here to set you free and to do something wonderful in your life. That you shouldn't live like that. Why? Because you're my son. You're my daughter. God lives in you. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, right? And so we look at this and we see the situation that this man is in. He needed much more than the help that mere men could provide. You know, it's interesting in looking at his situations, it says that no one could help him, right? I mean, it says there in verse 4, because, I mean, verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs, no one could bind him not even with chains. I mean, no one could. You know, they probably wanted to bind him so that he wouldn't cut himself, so they wouldn't hurt himself or anybody else, but they, they couldn't. You know, later on it says in verse 4 that, you know, the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. So no one could help him. No one could tame him. And what God is doing right here is he's painting a picture where we understand and we come to that realization that the help of man is useless. And so Jesus goes to him, right? You know, Warren Wisby said, with all of its wonderful scientific achievements, society still cannot cope with the problems caused by Satan and sin. Well, we thank God that society does offer a limited amount of restraint and protection we must confess that society cannot permanently solve these problems and deliver Satan's terrorized victims. Why? Only God can. Only God can. And so Jesus comes to the man, and that's not enough. We see, secondly, he casts out the demons. Look at verse 6. It says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country, now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains, and so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So Jesus, number one, comes to the man. Jesus, number two, he casts out the demons. God right here is trying to say, the answer for your life is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that has that authority. No one else can bind the enemy. No one else can tame us. 
only Christ can. And so he comes and we see Jesus dealing with demons. Um, One of the interesting things is when you read the Old Testament, it's not manifested as visibly. We do see the enemy, you know, uh, in different ways. But once the ministry of Jesus Christ begins, the devil rears his ugly head and he opposes him tooth and nail, right? Because Jesus is the one who brings freedom and forgiveness and salvation, right? And so we see the Lord uh, frequently dealing with demons, right? For example, Mark 1, 27 says, They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him, right? I mean, we see time and time again, the demons deal with Jesus, he casts them out, and we see time and time again even the fact that they identify him. They know who he is. What are demons? Demons are fallen angels, right? We know that prior to the fall of Satan, uh, there were these hosts of angels in heaven. And think about it. They saw the glory of God. They saw the one sitting on the throne, man, and they worshipped him. We don't even know for how long, but eventually the time came The day came where Satan fell, and the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 that he drew a third of the angels with him. So they were cast down to earth. Now they're demons, right? But as demons, when they see God, I mean, they are compelled to worship him, right? Because they know his glory. They know who Jesus is, which is exactly what we see take place here. Now, when this man with this demon sees Jesus, we read in verse 7 that he begged him, it says, by God, that he would not torment him. You see, the demons know that their day will come, right? Matthew 8 and 29, he said, have you come here to torment us before the time? And Luke chapter 8, verse 31, it says, and they begged him that he would not command them to go into the abyss. And so in looking at this, uh, at first when I was studying it, I'm like, well, why didn't the demon come out right away? As a matter of fact, when we read our text right here, it says he commanded him to come out, but he was still there. Not only that, it's interesting, Jesus asked him his name. So let me ask you guys a question. Do you think Jesus knew his name? He did. So why is he delaying this? Why is he asking him, talking to him? And the answer is for us. The answer is for the apostles and disciples and for everyone who would witness this. The answer is for, you know, those times where we think that, you know, this situation might be too difficult for God. Here, Jesus, who's veiled in his glory, deals with a legion of demons. Now, a legion could have been 6,000. It could have been more. We don't know for sure the number, We know that legions in Roman times were the elite soldiers. They were cavalry, they were footmen, they were special skilled men and soldiers. And so this is not just some, you know, small, insignificant, singular demon. This is a legion of demons who is horrified when Jesus Christ comes into their presence. You know, for us, I think it's important to know that. You know, a lot of times we walk around and I think we, 
you know, we make excuses. We think, well, you know, I mean, there's a battle going on and I'm just human and, you know, these demons are pretty strong. And so we sin and we do things that we shouldn't do and we don't do things that we should do. When God says, I want you to move mountains, I want you to walk on water, I want you to serve me the way that a Christian should. And we're like, well, how? And God says, look, I live in you. The one who took care of a legion of demons. You see, for us, we've got to know these things. This is why the Lord allows us to see this. He could have dealt with it in the blink of an eye, but he says, no, I want them to see what's really going on here. You know, I think it's also noteworthy to see how this legion of demons asked not to be cast out of the country. Why is that? You know, you th- why did they want to stay in that country? You know, someone might say, well, they like the view there. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think they appreciate creation the way we do. And what we find, and I know this is very biblical, is that even demons can be territorial. You know, we read in the book of Daniel, for example, chapter 10, verse 13 and verse 20, how there were demons that were uh, controlling or heading up the opposition of nations, for example, Greece and Persia. You know, there is an aspect of organization within demons, and there is a certain territory that they're assigned. You know, I, I remember when I first came to Almani, I remember going to the prayer. We used to go to this place called Prayer Mountain, and we would go into these little caves, and it was just something that the Lord had for that season of my life, and we would go into there, those caves, and we would get on our face. And you know, not that this is some great revelation or anything, but God told me about how there are, or there's a prince of, of Persia, there are demons that are overseeing the city of Almani, um, you know, sometimes, you, you know, I don't know how this always works, but, you know, you, so you guys ever heard of a haunted house? A haunted house? They're not ghosts, okay? There's no such thing as a ghost. When we die, our souls go to heaven or hell. So there's nobody floating around. But there are demons. And there, there is a case, I think it can be biblically true, for demons who can get ter- territorial to say, this is my house. You know, some of us here, we might even be living in a house where the enemy has a stronghold. And you need to go in there and you need to rebuke the enemy. And you need, you need to strengthen your walk and commitment to Christ. You know, I was talking to a family the other day and they were telling me about how their son who's dabbling with drugs, in his room, when they go into his room, they felt a presence there a darkness there, a demonic spirit was claiming that room. He was claiming his, their son. And this happens. And so when we look at this right here, we realize this is real stuff. You know, ultimately, the devil wants to destroy us, right? It's a place called hell. And it's a place called hell even while we're on earth. And so for us, in looking at this, we see it can get territorial. And we need to know things like this. Another thing that's interesting is how the demons wanted to go into the pigs. Now, what does that tell us? Well, we know they didn't want to go into the abyss. They didn't want to get tormented before their time. 
But theologians believe that what that reveals to us about demons is that they do not want to be disembodied. They want to find a host to inhabit. Now in this case, uh, they probably figured that Jesus would allow them to go into pigs, which is interesting to me, you guys, when you think about that, how an animal can be possessed. I, I think I met a couple of cats that way, but that's about it. But it's bizarre. It's bizarre to me, you know? Now, you know, the, 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 I don't know how this all happened, but these pigs, they go and uh, they, they run. It's a stampede. And they die. They get drowned in the sea. And some say it's because perhaps they were Jewish and they were having an illegal business. We don't know. Uh, they were unclean animals. We know this is an unclean spirit. That does seem to make sense. But at the end of the day, a lot of people have a problem with it because they're like, wow, look at the pigs, poor pigs, you know? And, and it, just, it just, to me, you know, we, we love our animals. We're kind to them. The proverb says we're to be kind to them. But they are not on par with the human soul. We got to know that. We've spent millions of dollars trying to protect some whale. And we, we know, we spend millions of dollars killing our children. Why? Because we don't realize that animals are not, the, they're not created in the image of God. So, you know, for us and looking at the pigs, you know, going in uh, again, you know, God knows what he's doing. I believe the fact that he was dealing probably with an illegal business that was taking place there. And so he had no problem with this happening, right? And so Jesus granted the demons permission, which then led to the swine going over the cliff. And so, number one, Jesus comes to the man, which is so beautiful. Number two, Jesus casts out the demons, which is so beautiful. But then number three, Jesus cures the man. And this is where it gets so cool. Look at verse 14. It says, And so those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. So what does it look like when Jesus sets someone free? I mean, to where, you know, you're saved and you're sanctified. To where you really come into that place where you belong as a Christian to where you would experience victory over the valleys. Where, what does it look like? I think here we have three things that are so beautiful. Number one is this man was sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. He was sitting. And when you read the Bible, there's something about sitting that is very, very special. It shows an aspect of the fact that our souls are now settled, right? I mean, when you read the Bible, when someone sits at the feet of a rabbi or a teacher, it's there that they're taught. It's there that they're learning. They're discipled. And immediately, this man, when he's cured, he finds himself sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you remember, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, did this. We read in Luke 10.39, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. You know, when you become a Christian and God really begins to break those chains and set you free from the devil, 
then you will have a hunger for God's word like never before. You won't be one of those people like, well, I don't know if I should go to church today. I kind of don't feel like it. There's a football game on and, you know, the Rams are in town now, right? You're not going to be like that. You're not going to be one of those people who has a hard time opening up your Bible. When Jesus Christ sets you free from the power of demons, then you will sit at his feet and you will have a hunger, an insatiable appetite for his word. You know, even Jesus sat at the feet of uh, teachers early in his life in Luke chapter 2, verse 46. And there's a beautiful passage in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 3 where the Bible says, yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone receives your words. And there's just so much there. You know, we're so busy doing all these different things. We don't have time to get into the Word. We're, when it's the Word that will change you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. When you get faith, you will kill, you will kill giants. When you get faith, God will use you like never before. God will work in you. God will change things through you like never before. When you have faith, but you won't have faith without the Word. And so when the Lord begins to work and set you free from the bondage of the devil, number one, you're going to be sitting. Number two, it's so beautiful how this man is now clothed. It says there in verse 15, they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And undoubtedly, these are literal truths. He's sitting down. He's, he's got his clothes on now. You know, an interesting thing, Luke chapter 8, verse 27 says he wore no clothes, but now he has clothes on. But it's not just, you know, good clothes from a physical standpoint. Of course, we know it's more than that. You know, when you put your spiritual think, thinking cap on, you realize that it goes beyond the physical and into the spiritual. I think of Isaiah 61, verse 10. The Bible says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks herself himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, that's what happens. You know, you and I, we get dressed every day. And you guys look good, by the way. I wanted to mention that to you, man. But you know, uh, the same thing takes place spiritually. You know, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I tell you what, every day you wake up and you put on your armor. Because we're in a war, remember? And there are battles along the way. Now we find this man is so beautiful. He's sitting at Jesus' feet and he's clothed with Jesus' righteousness. You see, that's what the Lord does. He covers us. And the Bible says in Revelation 19, 14, that we are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And you mess up. And we all do. But we get on our knees. And we ask God to forgive us. And we mean it when we tell him, I repent. Lord, I'll never do that again. And what does he do? He clothes you. And he cleanses you in linens of righteousness. This is where this man was. 
not only was he sitting and clothed in his, but it says right there that he was in also in his right mind. You know, I trip out. To be honest with you, I trip out on some Christians, even Christians. And I, and I, and I think to myself, when I see some of the things that are going on, you know, what are they thinking? What a fool. What a fool that he would have sex before marriage. You know, God loves you and God forgives you and I don't want to beat you up or condemn you. But let me tell you something. He will bless you in your intimacy with your future wife or husband if you wait on the Lord. But you do that to yourself and you give your, a little bit of, of yourself away every time. What a fool. I mean, don't you know that that makes absolutely no sense? He died for us. He crossed the sea and he sailed through the storm to reach us and to break the chains that the enemy had in our life and you won't serve him? That's not a man in his right mind. You guys, we belong to him and we should serve him with all of our heart. So here's a guy, now he's in his right mind, and part of the reason I know he's in his right mind is because look what happens. He goes to Jesus, look, it says in verse 18, and when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed, he begged him that he might be with him. I mean, he begged him, Lord, I just want to be with you. See, that's a man who's, who's in his right mind. And so what ends up happening, the Lord, he, you know, he, he has different plans. It says in verse 19, but Jesus didn't permit him, but he said, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And so he departed and he began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. You know, Jesus knew that the man's place was in his own home with his own loved ones where he could bear witness to the Savior. After all, Warren Risby said, effective Christian living must begin at home where people know us the best. If we honor God there, then we can consider offering ourselves for service elsewhere. You know, and I thank God, you know, not everyone gets to go on staff. Not everyone gets to work at a church. Not everyone gets ordained as a pastor. That's okay, because you have greater callings in your life. You know, I thank God for the different parts of the body, you know, but I'm here, and in one sense, my ministry is just to be on my knees and to be in the Word, the ministry of prayer and the Word. I don't get to get out there as much as I would like. And some of you, you're ministering to people in jail. You're ministering to people who are homeless and on the streets or addicted to, to drugs. Those that no one else could ever reach, that I could never reach. You reach them. And it begins at home. You know, you go and you tell your friends what Christ has done for you. I'll tell you what. When I got saved and God set me free from drugs and alcohol and addictions, man galore, the very first thing I did is I went and I told my Thea Mary, who I live with, what Jesus had done for me. And I told my friend Carl, and I told my friend Paul, and I told my friend Bill, and I just went down the list, and I went and told all of them what Jesus had done for me. 
And the Lord says, you got to go do the same. And there's a great purpose for that because Jesus would send him home and he would go to this whole area called Decapolis. It's this, it's this area of 10 cities that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. And later on in Mark chapter 7, Jesus would go there and it would be a great and effective ministry. Part of the reason that was probably effective because this man had gone there first and he had kind of paved the way. The Lord knew exactly what he was doing. And so now this man, when you think about it, it just blows your way, one, your mind. One minute he's demon-possessed. The next minute he's commissioned by Jesus Christ with a mission of proclamation, without education, just salvation. And look at what the Lord did. You know, when you look at the way that he cured him, to me, it's just beautiful. I pray that you guys would go and you would share your testimony as well. Sometimes Christians think that they need to be judges or they need to be, you know, like a lawyer or some type of an attorney. No, be a witness. You just go and you tell people what Christ has done, right? And so we see, number one, Jesus comes to the man. Number two, Jesus casts out the demons. Number three, Jesus cures the man. But number four, and this one breaks your heart, the people cast out Jesus. Look again at verse 14. So those who fed the swine, they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. And then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. Isn't that crazy? I mean, here the Lord just is this amazing miracle. Everybody knew that this man was in a hopeless situation. No one could bind him. No one could tame him. And so when they see this all go down, they come. The Gospel of Luke tells us the whole city came. The whole city. And the same Greek word used earlier, parakaleo, the same Greek word used for him, the demons begging Jesus not to cast them out of the country, for the man begging Jesus not to, to allow him to go with them, there's the same Greek word now is used for them to, they're begging Jesus to leave. And so what does the Lord do? He leaves. He says, okay, and you read down here and, and it says, and, and he went to the other side, man. I mean, we read that in verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, you know, one thing I'll tell you is this, you guys. Jesus Christ is a perfect gentleman. You know, he loves you. He died for you. He will pursue you. And he will do it all your life. But he will not force you. Whether it's A, to become a Christian to begin with, or B, to be the Christian you're called to be, completely sold out and surrendered, completely committed to him. He's a perfect gentleman, and he'll knock on the door of your heart. But you and I have to make that decision. What ends up happening? Why did they choose you know, to ask Jesus to leave? And more than likely, the reason was money. 
You know, because the pigs, man, they, they brought in money. And how are you going to bring home the bacon if you've got no pigs, right? And so, you know, they said, hey, you know, you just, man, we just lost everything. I'll tell you this, and we'll close with this. You know, you can't serve two masters. You can try. And then you, you know, you name it. And there's this God called Mammon, and that was the God of money. And Jesus challenged them. He said, sooner or later, you're going to have to make a decision, you know. You can't serve two masters for either you're going to love one or hate the other. One day when both of them are calling your name, the Lord of your life, that's the one you will follow. And I have seen it over the years, time and time again, where people beg Jesus to leave. They essentially say that, not, not you know, literally, but they, they basically say, Jesus, get out of my life because I've got some money to make. And what ends up happening? You know, this is a crazy thing because you guys, we got to know this, that when you serve the Lord and you follow Him, and yeah, you might just live in a tent, you know, and you might have to take the bus. You might have to buy clothes, you know, from Ross or something. I don't know, just some place where you're like, it's not expensive or whatever, you know, but, but you got to know that as you're doing that and you're taking steps of obedience, all along the way that you were laying up treasures in heaven. You know, I don't know what it is in your life. I don't know what the decision has to be where you would put God first in your life. But I do want to encourage you to know this, you guys, as we close today, that this is the heart of Jesus Christ. This is the power of Jesus Christ. This is the calling of Jesus Christ. It's nothing less than this. That he would travel from eternity into time. That he would bring you here on a Sunday because he loves you. And he would call you to follow him. This is his heart. And this is his power that he has to provide for us today. And so we got to make a choice. You want the pigs? You know, it's interesting how the prodigal son, you know, when his life just went down and down and down, what, what does the Bible say about the prodigal son? He was eating with the pigs. That'll happen to you, my friend. Unless you give your life to Jesus Christ. Unless you serve him the way you're supposed to serve him. the way that a Christian should. I just pray, you guys, that we would make that decision. If you're here today, let me give you one last verse. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, wow, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff today and I don't know, how, where, do I, where do I start? You know, maybe you're here today and you know you, know you feel like you're a sinner and you're really bad and, and like you can't be forgiven or you messed up a hundred times. Man, you know, we've all been there. We've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. There are, I'm sure, things I've done, other people here, way worse than what you've done. But there's no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ can't forgive. And there is no life that he cannot redeem. He will give you love. He will give you joy. He will give you peace. He will give you heaven. He will give you freedom. He will give you life and that more abundantly.
but you got to choose to follow him. You got to make that choice, you know? The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here today and you want to make that decision, you want to know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven. You know that he died for you. He rose again the third day and all you got to do is repent of your sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And I pray that today you would make that decision. I pray that today you would pray to receive Christ.